Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, hello. This is the second class on the precepts. And today we're going to explore the relationship between awareness and morality, or mindfulness and ethics. So, in the last video, we explored how there are three different levels of ethics there is the literal level. There is the compassionate level, and then there is the koan level, meaning the level where you have a practice that allows you to become the situation. So you could say the first level is about having a practice. The second level is about your practice, including other people. And the third level is recognizing that you are others. You are the interdependent web that we call life. And it's easy to get stuck in one particular perspective. And the nice thing about these three different lenses is they allow us to constantly re-see or re-present um, what it is that we're, we're uh, facing. So first of all, one of the terms that's thrown around a lot these days is the term mindfulness. And so I want to start just by talking about this term a little bit. The term mindfulness comes from the Buddhist tradition where in Pali the word is sati. Um, that same word in Sanskrit, which you find in texts like the Yoga Sutra, is smurti. So smurti is the Sanskrit version of Pali. Uh, Sanskrit predates Pali. Um, Sanskrit was a language in ancient India that was mostly used by the Brahmin class. And so when the Buddha's teachings were starting to be put down uh, through memorization and eventually codified into texts, the teachings were put down in Pali because it was more of a street language. It was a language that one would use to communicate with another, not just chanted in um, temples or in uh, Brahmin families. Um, and of course, Pali, women would know also, whereas Sanskrit was mostly in the domain of men. So some scholars actually think that it's possible that the language of Pali was actually created for the Buddha's teaching. And this is a tangent we're not going to follow, but it's interesting to think about the way a language is actually created to appeal to the situation 
um, in which people live. So this is a nice thing to remember about spiritual practice, that these great traditions that we are um, referring to, even in this course, are invented by humans. They're designed and redesigned. And as some of these teachings now come into our culture, they may have some important things to teach us. And at the same time, our psyche and our society is going to change those teachings. And this is a good thing. So um, the way we wrestle with these ethical principles like nonviolence and honesty, this is how these teachings come into our life. Um, we struggle with them, we digest them, we act them out, we integrate them. And this, this process is really the process of embodying the precepts. So sati or smurti literally means to remember. It's a verb, to remember, uh, to come back. And that's why it's translated as mindfulness because it's a technique of coming back to present experience, to coming back to this moment, to coming back and arriving in your body, in your heart, in the conditions that you're in. So the practice of mindfulness really has two different wings. We could say the practice of meditation has two different wings. One wing is called shamatha, which usually is translated as calming. The other wing is vipassana. Uh, vi means to go in and pasha is an I. So literally it means insight. So one side is calming and the other wing is insight and they work together. So when you sit down, you drop your sits bones down into the floor and you give the earth your weight and you let your legs feel the floor underneath you. And sometimes if my nervous system is agitated or my mind is very busy, I'll actually just spend some time feeling the stillness of the floor. The ground is always uh, quiet. And then, starting to follow my breathing, I'll give attention to the inhale and exhale. Sometimes I focus on the breath in the nostrils, and sometimes it's easier to feel the breath in the belly. So this first stage of shamatha is being able to let the calmness of the breath spread in the body and let the body receive the breath. Now this doesn't mean to make your breath calm. So it's important when we start to practice formal meditation that we're not confusing it with the yogic breathing techniques that we call pranayama. That what we're actually doing is letting the breath be natural and give attention to the breath and see in the nostrils if the breath is smooth, like uh, silk, or if it's rough, maybe like canvas, if the breath is more in one nostril or in the other nostril. If the diaphragm is moving more to the front of the body or to the back of the body. 
And then allow the breath to come and go so that you really give trust to your body. Your body knows how to breathe. And when the body starts breathing, there's just a natural lift in the base of the skull that starts to happen. And there's a sense of being awake and alive and uplifted by the breath. So it's energizing, and yet it's calming at the same time. There's a sense that we're awake and also at ease. And this interesting, this term uh, mindfulness in the category of shamatha, because the word sham is where we get the root shanti. Um, Sham is actually a name for Shiva. And the word shanti literally means ease. It's a noun and a verb. So it means uh, to feel a sense of ease and also to ease fixations. So the first step of shamatha, or the first step of mindfulness, or the first step of finding ease, is just to be able to stop, to know how to stop. Our culture is running so, so fast. We're all running. Some of us were running away from things we don't want to look at, running away from stillness, running away from interdependence. And even though intimacy is something we have as a value, maybe there are ways we're running away from intimacy by not knowing how to stop, to be in this moment, the way the sun is coming in the window, the sounds in the room, the feelings in the body, the digestion in the belly, uh, the warmth right now in my legs, uh, coolness in the soles of the feet. So just, just coming into the body in this particular moment. And then appreciating how the nature of mind is awareness. So behind what we call the mind, behind all these stories and images and sensations that we're figuring out where to put, there is this, this sense of awareness operating all the time. I like to think of this as a natural resource. And being able to trust that place of presence is something available in every moment. Even when you're panicking and stirred up, the way to find that is through your breathing. So if you sit still and anxiety is present or restlessness or agitation, maybe it's early in the morning when you sit and you're tired, don't try and use your mind to work out what's going on for you. Instead, go under the mind or to the other end of the spectrum to the body, to feel and trust the body breathing. Sometimes people who have not processed sort of deep grief or their old uh, memories or even trauma present that haven't really been digested, uh, they, they have a hard time connecting to the feeling of breathing in the body. And so just to go slow, you're, you're not trying to make a particular experience happen. So let's say you sit and you want to follow your breathing, but there's a lot of restlessness. So just notice restlessness while you're breathing. 
In other words, you can bring mindfulness to whatever is present. Mindfulness doesn't mean that you're aware of breathing and nothing else. If your mind is busy, you can note, mind is busy. If you're planning, planning. If you're uh, feeling lazy, notice laziness, but stay with it. And watch how it changes as you connect it to your breathing. When we call meditation mindfulness or shamatha, and we're calling it a practice of stopping, we're starting to realize that when we're present with our compulsions, with our fears, with our worry or our sadness, that there are times where whatever you're caught up in, just settle. This is the sham. This is the ease. There's actually physiologically at the root of the palate, at the root of the so, so the soft palate. When it lifts, when the mouth is released, this is actually called in yoga shambhavi mudra or the gesture of ease. So physiologically, as we release our grip on what we're thinking about, what we're obsessed with then there's a physiological response in the palate, through the soft palate, in the heart, where there's a kind of openness. And sometimes we call this the space between thoughts, that when you're really caught up in something as you're following your breath, eventually whatever you're caught up in just starts to pass away because it's impermanent. And that space there, which could just be for a moment, before something else arises. Although the tendency is to call this, you know, awareness, it's also the core of non-harming. It's the impulse of non-violence in the world. To be able to find enough quietude in your body that you can start to see the arising and passing away of thoughts allows you to then start to touch this place of non-harming. Not again this philosophy, oh, I'm non-harming, I'm non-violent, I ascribe to the ideology of, of not killing and I'm a vegan and so on in your quiet experience, to be able to find trust in that place where no matter what's showing up for you, of course this is easier to do in a quiet place than in the marketplace, we cultivate the ability to touch that place of nonviolence where we're literally connecting with the breath at the level of sensation and allowing the conceptual mind to just start to settle in an undistracted awareness, an impeccable awareness. And this is a sort of relaxed attention that I think is really uh, important to get a sense of in this course because it's from that place that we start to feel the interconnectedness of life. As we get quiet, our self-centeredness decreases. And when we're really self-centered 
and worried and in the future or in the past, the first thing that goes is a sense of appreciation, of gratefulness, and of a sense of the interconnectedness of our lives. We uh, rush past people. We don't even take the time to be aware of the wind and the seasons and the uh, pain and joy uh, in each moment and in the lives of others. So this is really the paradox uh, of meditation is that we come at it thinking it's going to give us peace or it's going to send me to this space where I won't feel anything anymore. But actually what starts to happen is through the technique of staying with the breathing, the ease is just found as what's behind the scenes all the time rather than something that you have to achieve. And that's called shamatha. That's the beginning of one wing of meditation. When the things settle, then the other wing starts to show up. And this is the wing of vipassana, which means insight. We start to get insight into the workings of our mind, into the workings of other minds, into the working, into the way that suffering is constructed in our experience and in our society. Simply put, the more stillness you can contact in your own heart, the more you begin to see how whatever you're sticking to, whatever you're going after, whatever you're trying to keep for yourself is pretty much a futile endeavor. And when you see the futility of that, you, you begin to get some insight into dukkha, some insight into suffering, some insight into that ache that's always trying to be covered over. And um, that right there is social action. As soon as you make the link between how you're acting out unconscious patterns of behavior or how you're not able to connect with stillness in your own self, then you're contributing something so profound to the culture. And your friends will feel this and your family will feel this. The people around you will feel this. It benefits everybody. And so meditation is not really so solitary. And part of the Vipassana side of meditation is to start to see how suffering is something we're running away from. And to be able to fully know suffering is what the Buddha says, to fully know suffering to fully know violence, to fully know how you kill, to fully know how you feel when you're unsatisfied. And then you learn how to take care of that unsatisfaction or that sense of lack or inadequacy or however it shows up for you in different circumstances. And we're trying to learn how to take care of that. 
Then Vipassana continues and we start to have insight into impermanence, how everything that moves through our awareness is subject to change, it's flowing. In fact, the I who I think I am is also changing, is impermanent. And the third level of Vipassana is called um, emptiness or not-self. I'm not going to get too much into that today, but essentially what it's referring to is the fact that underneath all of the distractions and endless ideations and picture thoughts, we touch something deeper than who we think we are. And the felt sense of that is what I would call intimacy or the oneness of life or the interdependence of reality or the intimacy that is reality. So it's important when you're caught up in something to have a kind of relaxed awareness about it where you're not judging what's showing up. And then returning to the breath and letting whatever is predominant just come and go and returning to the body as your anchor. And then, as this happens, you'll start to see places where it's easy to be present, certain patterns, and certain sensations or feelings or agitations where it's really hard to, to stay present. And that inner work you're doing is the beginning of nonviolence. It's all three levels of nonviolence together as one. It's literally not causing harm because you're not taking unconscious, habitual, reactive um, roots. You're not running away from what you feel. It's compassionate. Because in each moment, you're meeting what's showing up, accompanied by your breathing. There's a, a wonderful joke in meditation circles that your mind is like a bad neighborhood that you don't want to go into alone. And how true is this? Some corners of our minds are uh, threatening to us. We don't really give some areas in our life too much attention. And meditation is going to bring those up. And so we use this simple practice so that we go into those neighborhoods accompanied, accompanied by tr the trust in the breathing, spaciousness and effortlessness of breathing. And the breath can be loyal, like a really good friend that never leaves you in those parts of our psyche that are threatening or difficult. So anyways, the practice of mindfulness meditation is a practice of coming home. It's a practice of arriving. And if we can't arrive and meet each moment, ethics is just good philosophy or it's discipline, neither of which are really the heart of what we're working towards. So let's say that our practice right now of nonviolence will be the creative practice of meeting each moment as it is. If you can't meet what's going on for you moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, 
you lose track of yourself. You lose track of your life and you're not listening to the oneness of life. Sometimes we don't want to listen. We have selective hearing. And this practice is about the, the creative engagement with our lives that happens naturally, the loving response that happens naturally when we're not uh, stressed, highly reactive, or uh, projecting um, our suffering onto other people, onto institutions, onto politicians, onto our parents, onto our children, onto teachers, authority figures. We're able to really stay with the truth of what's happening in our experience. And this is the heart of mindfulness practice. And I hope you can see how being mindful day to day is inseparable from ethics. I like to call this situational ethics. Situational ethics means having the ability or the creativity present as a wellspring to meet a situation, to be able to literally drop your fixed view. And this is the heart of non-attachment. Non-attachment is the skill. And I would say it's just like learning piano or French or some other, or Sanskrit, where we're, we're training our brain, our nerves, our breathing to be able to show up. So I don't think you can separate creativity and nonviolence. I think at the heart, they come back to this ability to meet the moment fully without prejudice. And when you can really meet the moment fully, you are practicing non-harm. You are practicing creativity. And, and you may not get it right. Part of meeting each moment is showing up with your history and your life. And you may show up not knowing what to do and end up doing something unskillful. And, and we're going to get into that. But for now, the most important thing is embodying the precepts through this practice of mindfulness. So every day, I want you to sit for 30 minutes. I want you to sit still, sit up, and sometimes when I sit up, I like to just start by telling myself, reminding myself that I'm setting the intention to be present without judgment of whatever is going to arise for the next 30 minutes. I set the timer where I can't see it. I trust in the timer and I follow the breathing just as I described earlier. And whatever shows up in that space, whatever shows up in that time, Whatever shows up in the room, whatever shows up in the whole field of awareness, I am present with it, with the breath in the background. And if I get too caught up in something, I'll just come back again to this feeling of breathing, um, this practice of intimacy. So this is what I'd like you to do. 
And at the end of the 30 minutes, I like to bow. And then before I get up off my cushion, I'll sometimes just review the sit. And maybe to spend two or three minutes, just where was I caught? Um, was there something really strong I was invested? And I'll just note that. Was there something strong I was invested in or something I may need to give some attention to? And then I'll get up. Um, because sometimes meditation, and not always, kind of reveals areas of your, our life we need to give attention to. And we just don't want to leave them on the cushion. We want to just sort of note them before we get up. Oh, there's a lot of uh, sound in the digestive system today. I need to eat really simply. Or um, I'm feeling stiff and I, I really should have a bath sometime today. So, and maybe this is also kind of the instinct of self-care that comes, that replaces non-judgment when we're quiet in the, the meditation practice. So, meditation and ethics are inseparable. Meditation gives us the real skill of being able to meet each moment as that moment is arising, to really be awake to our lives. And with your partners this week, what I want you to do is I just want you to um, talk about, first, to talk about how meditation practice every day is impacting your life. I want you to share your process around not being able to get to the cushion if you have avoided your sitting practice on some days, to share that also with your partner. And then I want you to pick one thing that you can do throughout the day that you're going to treat as a formal meditation practice, as a formal mindfulness practice. So maybe the dishes at dinner time, maybe walking to the place where you work, maybe um, lunch can be mindful eating. Is there something you can do where you're using your body actively, that's 20 or 30 minutes, where you can treat that as a mindfulness practice. And while you treat that as a mindfulness practice, I want you to also reflect on the inseparability of mindfulness and nonviolence. The seamlessness of taking care to be in this moment, even when it's painful, and the activation of non-harming. To, to see how those things are linked together. The practice of coming home to this moment, and also our action of lifting things and trying and working and communicating Maybe you might want to treat um, going out for coffee with a friend as a mindfulness practice. But pick one thing that you do every day. I'm not suggesting you start drinking coffee every day. But do one thing every day for 20 or 30 minutes in addition to your formal sitting practice that involves your body or involves speech or involves another person's face and treat this as a mindfulness practice. 
And I want you to see how this is also a practice of nonviolence. So when you meet your partner, talk about what it's like um, in your meditation practice. Be honest about the difficulties you might find getting to the cushion. And lastly, share with them whatever exercise you've chosen for 30 minutes every day that's active as a mindfulness practice and how that's related to non-harming. Talk to your partner for 20 minutes, then let them um, speak for 20 minutes, and then talk together about what that was like. Um, so I've given you a few different um, uh, homework assignments with your partners, and I, I want to stress again that this is a tradition of transmitting these teachings face-to-face, heart-to-heart, body-to-body. The teachings are not transmitted any other way, not through reading and studying, but through verifying how these practices work in your own life and then activating them in the relational sphere, which is the sphere for most people who are introverted and interested in meditation that is more challenging. Relationships are the key uh, to yoga. Relationship is the doorway to the Dharma. But to be in relationship, honestly and courageously, we need a practice that allows us to be in our lives, uh, to be who we are. So, mindfulness meditation, mindfulness smurti or sati, the practice of coming back, the practice of returning, returning to your life. This is my life, loneliness. I can be one with that. This is my life right now. Loud construction at the corner. This is my life right now. Hungry. I'm hungry. Hungry is present. I can be one with hunger. This is my life right now. So excited for the weekend. It's the last day of the week. I can't wait to have a day off tomorrow. To be one with that, to, to feel what it's like to be excited, to be happy, to be joyful. And it passes. So this, so shamatha is being able to stop whatever we think should be going on. How is my life supposed to be right now? And arrive in the way that it is right now. So we're not creating more suffering for ourselves. Even if suffering is present. To come home to suffering to fully know suffering, our own and the suffering of others, to be sensitive to and tender also to the suffering of others, because that person is also you. And then this brings the other wing, um, vipassana, uh, or vipassana in Pali, pasa is an I, pasya is I in Sanskrit, insight starting to get under how we think we see and really looking closely without the prejudice that comes when we're unconscious.
So, uh, good luck. This is um, not easy and it's not hard. This is a daily practice that you can take up to benefit all beings. You might think at the beginning that this is just for you, and you'll see over time how calling mindfulness practice the heart of nonviolence is activating the practice in your own heart and in the body and the body politic, all as one. So uh, please be courageous and share with your partners. Uh, they too are aspiring bodhisattvas and Buddhas.